I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Welcome to episode 37, A Good Man. As part of our fifth anniversary edition, A Good Woman, A Good Man. A good man is one who takes responsibility. A good man is one who takes responsibility. It seems so simple, and yet I find it is the thing that delineates one man from another man. The man who can look at what he does and step forward and say, it was me. I did it. I made the choice. I'll accept the consequences. And I said, a good man is one who takes responsibility. A good woman is one who puts down those that were never hers to carry because women, we are natural takers of responsibility. Oftentimes by force from a young age, we're parentified, forced to care for our siblings, forced to take care of the household, forced to take care of the needs of others. And so it becomes natural to us to take responsibility. And I talked in the last episode about how oftentimes this can diminish our sense of dignity because when we carry responsibility for what other people think and what other people do and what other people say, we lose ourselves in that process. We lose a vision for our own lives. But I find men, it's very different. And forgive me now because I'm going to make very gendered arguments in this episode. And it's not just men saying, well, that's not my responsibility. No, it's not quite that simple. Oftentimes, men will scapegoat intentionality and say, well, I didn't intend to. Therefore, they won't take responsibility over the impact or consequences of their own actions. And this can be so, so harmful, so harmful. I once loved a man so much. And because for me, the act of love was synonymous with taking responsibility as it is for so many women, I immediately grabbed a hold of my feelings. I said, this is how I feel and I'm going to act on it. And when we intimated and when we spent time and when we traveled and were together, I said, this is what is happening and I am choosing what is happening with both eyes open. And I did that from the very first day to the very last day of our relationship. And this is someone that was always on the fence, always skirting the line between the present and the past. And it caused so much confusion. And even when he left, left in a state of serious confusion. And in his wake caused so much heartache and so much frustration. And at a point when I was young, I must've been 22. And I tell the woman that he had been seeing the same time he was seeing me, I tell her, he's been seeing both of us. And in my mind, I'm thinking, if I can just dispel the confusion, if I can just produce the truth, everything will fall into place. But this was a man who could not take responsibility. And so he cut ties when the truth is revealed and he runs away, he disappears. Well, recently at the end of last year, he resurfaced and I've not seen this person in years. And we're finally, talking about everything that occurred. And I tell him, you know what, I forgive you because forgiving him for me was a way of taking responsibility for my own happiness and the complicity that I had in my own heartbreak. And the response that I never expected was he said, I forgive you too. And I said, you forgive me for what? And I realized that he was forgiving me for telling the other woman about our relationship. And he asked me the strangest question, which after all these years was never, ever, ever, ever the question I thought he'd ask. And he said, did you do it out of vengeance? Did you do it out of hatred? And it dawned on me suddenly, this might've been one of the most keen revelations I've ever had in my life. I thought, wow, after all this time, you still view the truth as punishment. And we ruminate on the past for a bit. The conversation lasts an hour. We decide that everything is best left where it's left. We reach this conclusion of understanding, mutual forgiveness, and we say goodbye. 
And he says to me, you know what, Viv? I wish you a good life, a good life. And I say to him, I wish you the life you deserve. And he pauses for a second because he thinks that I'm being malicious. And I said, no, if you're a good man, like you claim you are, then you will have a good life. But if you're not a good man, then you will get the life you deserve. Do I tell this story to speculate on if he's a good man or not? Hmm, I'll leave that up to you. I think he's a young man and I realize it takes a long, long time, a long time for young men to become good men because of the way their mothers raised them, because of the things our fathers do not say. It is so easy to forego responsibility. And I asked him if I had never called you, never sought out closure, would you have ever doubled back? Would you have ever taken responsibility for the things you had done or the hurt you had caused? And there was a long, long silence. And I could tell he was really maybe thinking about it for the first time, what I had thought about so many times. And I said, to break the silence, well, I guess we'll never know. To which he agreed. Why is this important as a woman to understand what it means to be a good man? And why must we measure men by their ability to take responsibility? Because when women are socialized to take on undue responsibility over the needs and the actions and the feelings of others, when we are constantly internalizing and measuring our own self-worth as a reflection of our ability to withstand and hold and carry other people's stuff, and that becomes our measure of goodness. When we look at how much a woman can bear across her life and say, well, that's a good woman, especially black people. The trope of the strong black woman, of the superhero, of a woman who is a worker and a mother who is burdened constantly in excess, the bag lady, as Erica Badu put it, then we are at our most vulnerable when we happen upon men who cannot take responsibility, who refuse it, mind you, this is not a perfect man, not one who is without mistakes, without shortcomings, without failures, without proclivities and tendencies, but a man who can look at what he's done, a man who does not throw a stone and hide his hand, as the old folks put it. When we as women can see a man and say, okay, that's a man who will take responsibility, then we save ourselves years of heartache, of trying to understand why what was done, what was done, why what was said was said. I had a friend who recently came to me and he was in a state of real distress. He's like, I really fucked up this time. He had unknowingly, or maybe knowingly and just for convenience sake at the time, but regretfully entered into a relationship with a woman that ended up being a friends with benefits ordeal gone wrong, where she, having entered into this agreement, began to feel more intensely than he felt, and then he withdrew completely, and then she was rightfully hurt and angered, deciding to cut ties with him entirely, despite the mutual friends that they shared and history that they had had. And he comes to me and he's very distressed. I mean, he was really, really upset. And he said, I need to talk to her. I need to explain to her that it's not her fault. And I asked him, I said, is it just that you're not okay with being hated? Because you're wrong, you're dead wrong. And he said, no, that's not it. If she hates me, she hates me. She might always hate me. He said, I, I have frustrations with being hated and I hate being misunderstood, but I don't need to talk to her and explain myself in order to get out of being hated. And I said, good, because you're not a victim. And I said, so why do you want to talk to her? It might cause her more pain to hear from you than not. And he said to me something that I had never heard. He said, I need her to know that what I did was because I'm a broken person. 
because I have an inability sometimes to articulate my feelings, because I have difficulty saying no, and because yearning for affection, at times I am selfish. And I need her to know that so she doesn't go down the rabbit hole of thinking and wondering what's wrong with her or what she did wrong that I couldn't reciprocate the feelings that she had put forth even though we were having sex. Him admitting this to me, who is a completely separate third party who doesn't know the woman, I started to cry. I really thanked him and I said, you know what, you fucked up big time. And I don't know how the conversation will go, but I said, it's so good to know there are still men out there who desire to take responsibility. And him having that conversation is what led me after so many years to call up the person I mentioned earlier because I thought about had he reached out to me after everything was said and done, had he just told me I'm lost, I'm afraid, I'm at a crossroads, I'm confused, I'm desperate, I'm lustful, I'm going through some things. Any semblance of just saying I was there participating in the act of hurt and maybe I don't know why. Maybe I'll never know. Maybe I'm just beginning to understand. But I was there. You were not by yourself. You were not fantasizing or imagining a mirage of actions and reactions and words and promises. I was there living right beside you. And I can't undo what I've done and I can't unsay what I've said. And I broke a lot of promises and I made some mistakes and I am a broken man. Maybe if he had taken any semblance of responsibility, I wouldn't have had to take so much. I wouldn't have had to delineate and map out and connect all the dots of the wins and whys and whos. And I could have gotten on with my life a lot faster. See, my friend, he said, I'm a broken person. I'm a broken man. But there are so many ways that broken things can be made whole. But it is difficult for men who refuse responsibility to obtain strength, to be strong men, to be righteous men to be good men, because people that have no shame also have no courage. I've learned that oftentimes the thing that makes us do courageous acts, the thing that makes us seek forgiveness, the thing that makes us admit wrongs, courageous acts often begins with a sense of shame, a sense that something wrong has occurred. One thing that struck me about the conversation with my ex, having not seen or spoken to one another in many years, having not checked on social media, because he doesn't have that, when we kind of started to talk about what we had been up to, and I told him that I got my show, told him that you could stream it anytime on PBS, and he asked the name of it, and I told him it was Generational Anxiety, and he said, wow. And he was struck because it was the same name that I'd begun with because I conceived of the show when we were together. And it was funny because I thought in my mind, after all these years, I had always thought what he had been doing with his time. Thought that he would have built the nascent stages at least of a great business empire or increased in stature and beauty and wisdom. And he had not done any of those things. I thought at the very least, at the very least, that he would have married or cultivated a life with the woman he left me for. And even that had not occurred. And in fact, and in fairness, he truly had not changed very much at all. And I realized at that point, those who fail to take responsibility for the things that they do, they can't move forward. And I felt very sorry for him. And I probably would have felt a lot more sorry for him had I not thought about all the ways that he had fucked up my life. <laughs> when it's always up to somebody else, when it's always someone else's fault, when we do things, but we didn't mean to do them, when we fail to take responsibility for our own lives, we stagnate, we can't help it. Because to take responsibility is also to step into the present, to say, I'm here. I am here in my relationships. I am here in my contracts. I am present and accounted for it. And my word means something. And those are the people 
who move the world forward. Those are the kind of people that move things around, that have real power. They say with great power comes great responsibility, but they never explain to you that with great responsibility also comes great power. Because the things that we choose to lay hold over, that we say, this one is mine, this family is my family, this job is my job, then even the most minuscule of tasks, picking your kids up from school, keeping the lights on, taking out the trash, cooking dinner, making sure your employees' checks are signed, being present is what gives a good man the ability to become a great man. After my friend had this grandiose conversation with this woman and had asked for her forgiveness and explained the situation, two weeks went by and I called him and I asked him how it went. And I was concerned because he had been so distraught over it. And he said, well, you know, things were said. We worked through a lot of it. A lot of it is just going to be misunderstood. That's just the way it's going to be. And he said, but I'm moving on now. I said, wow, that was quick. I was like, you were so distraught and it seems that you're over it. He said, well, no, I'm not over it, not completely, and I'll work out the rest in therapy. But he's like, I have to move on. He said, Bianca, there are things I really wanna do. I have plans. And my admiration and love for my friend increased so much and I thought, this is such a, he's a good man. He's a young man, sometimes a foolish man, but he's a good man. He said, I have plans. There are things I wanna do. One ironic thing is that in the years in which I did not speak to this person who had broke my heart and spun my world around, is that thinking that he was moving on and building a life and a family, thinking that he was doing well, was the driver behind a lot of relentlessness, a lot of ambition that I have. And this is a story of many young women, many women, we go get revenge bodies and seek to better ourselves, thinking if this person finds me, they're gonna find me better than they left me. But the thing that I've learned is that if a man is not willing to take responsibility, doesn't much matter when he sees you again. Because a man that engages in relationships, so many relationships that he has no plans for, it's often because the general landscape of his life is that he lives with very little intentionality, that he has very few plans for himself, or that he views women and people as collateral damage that will be amassed along the way as he tries to enact the plans he does have for himself. Those are selfish men, and they often live with a lot of emptiness. Good men exist men who are trying to produce good in the world, men that are looking for truth, men that are aiming for better. And I love them and we need them. We need men to take responsibility in a world that seems to reward men who are increasingly averse to doing so, men that don't wanna take responsibility for the children that they create, for the hearts that they break, for the privilege and the violence that they wield over others. But I don't think that those men realize that without taking responsibility, there is no potential, there is no avenue, conduit towards greatness. The truth is you become a good man or you just become an old man. And for too many black men, sometimes neither. This world is desperate and calling out for people that will be present and accounted for for the actions of their own lives who are not using substance or sex to scapegoat the call to be present, to be accounted for. And maybe it feels easy to do so sometimes because it feels like, because it's been advertised that we don't need men anymore, but we need you here. We need you present. We need you trying, not perfect, not needlessly headstrong or invincible, not Superman, just, here, taking responsibility as an act of love, taking responsibility is a good man because taking responsibility is a loving man. 
And the next time I indulge and engage at the depth of intimacy, the next time I share secrets and dreams and plans with a man to the extent that I have in the past, I know it'll have to be with one who takes responsibility. Because to be a good man and to love a good woman is to take responsibility. Let the good women, free of that shame, full of life and willingness to love, come forth and be loved by good men who are willing as difficult and frustrating as it often is to take responsibility for what it means to love good women and may the result of it all be love. No, let the result of it all be truth and from that truth may we find love. Now let's get into these questions because I know that's your favorite part. Dear Viv, I oftentimes find myself oddly unaware of my own feelings. I have my own notions of what led me to this point, but I'm unsure of how to get to a place where I'm fully aware and trust my own thoughts and feelings. So many people think I'm so headstrong when in reality, I'm in a constant battle with myself and my mind. How do I deal with this? Yesterday, I was talking to my friend and he told me that he had been very wearied by a woman that he had been hanging out with. He said, I approached her and I asked her how she was doing and I hadn't spoken to her in years. And when I talked to her, she told me about all of this traumatic stuff that had happened to her and how frustrating it was to go through this whole ordeal. And I found herself opening up more and more. And I found myself trying to give her reasons to trust me to open up more. And by the end of it, I felt very weary. And I said, is this someone that you want to pursue romantically? And he said, no. I said, is this someone that you desire to be friends with? He said, not really. I said, so why did you approach her in the first place? And he said, I suppose it was just something to do. And I reminded him, and he actually said, thank you for reminding me of a word called intentionality. We have to constantly, I mean constantly, check in with ourselves about our intentions for things because so often we dissociate when it's time to carve out intentions for our actions for our words for our relationships and we don't look up until all we have is impact and so often the impact of unintentional behavior is negative or we have to justify actions when we don't set an intention we don't know why we did something and then we find ourselves strung up by our egos having to justify actions for which there was no real intention in the first place but the impact and the consequences there and it's very difficult to take retroactive responsibility for our lives we can prevent this by just asking ourselves why why am i doing this why am i engaging am i engaging in this behavior why am i doing this favor why am i putting myself on the line for this person why am i asking for this thing why am i spending this money so many parts of our lives can be improved when we act with intention and so you may ask well how do we act with intention you have to slow down i told a good friend this the other day because she was sort of barreling into these relationships where she felt like i fall very easily how do i stop falling so quickly i said there's nothing wrong with feeling instantaneous attraction feeling overwhelmed with a sense of wonder at a person there's nothing wrong but when we act on those feelings just as quickly as we have them without checking in with ourselves to ask why am i doing this why am i feeling this way then we end up doing things that potentially lead to regret so slowing down and it's very difficult to get young people to slow down we desire things instantaneously and we have been cultivated in a society that values instantaneous gratification and a desire for permanent happiness and so if we're not in times of joy we consider ourselves as suffering when in reality i find when you come off of moments of success of ecstasy of a high in life it's good to ground yourself in a sense of what are my intentions for the next part of my life 
and a sense of reflection of what was this part of my life that just passed? What did I like about the things I was doing? What didn't I like? And that's how you see gradual improvement in your life. And that's how you gain a sense of self-awareness. And one thing that I do quite often is I journal all the time. I fill in pages reflecting on what I'm feeling. And it's not just as a sort of meditation or a release for my day. It's also so that I can look over many days and see the way that my feelings are changing and evolving and troubles that I thought would never leave me, I see as I flip the page that they're leaving me. And I realized when I was talking to my friend who had this issue with this woman, I said, what is the difficulty with you setting intention? And he said, the difficulty for me in setting intention is that I'm never alone. He lives with his grandmother, he lives with his family. And so he said, I feel like the first thing I wake up in the morning I hear the voice of this old lady in my head. And for the rest of the day, when I leave the house, when I go to work, when I do all these side hustles that I do, and then I hang out with friends, by the time that I have alone time to myself, when I'm on the train, when I'm walking from place to place, I can't tell if I'm actually experiencing my own thoughts or if it is an amalgamation of all of the voices in my head that have been planted and transfixed throughout the day. And that's when you don't even consider the amount of external voices that come through all of these different social mediums. You have to take very intentional time of complete solitude. And if you don't live by yourself, you have got to find it. It's very interesting. One of the most widely sold black novels of all time, Native Son by Richard Wright, sort of the plight of the main character bigger who is this young black man who feels that he is imprisoned and encaged by life is that he's constantly living with these other voices in his head he has the voice of white people that are constantly degrading him and belittling him and then whether it's his mother or his sexual partner all of these people he feels like they are imprisoning him and it causes him to treat them very badly and he's seen as very arrogant and very headstrong really because he is so trapped and that is the byproduct of this lack of self-awareness is that we begin to feel trapped by the people around us even if that's not their intention even if they are just living their lives beside us we begin to feel like we are cuffed to them cuffed to the way that they think cuffed to their negative thoughts cuffed to their notions about their own reality and we feel in prison and we don't take that intentional time to ask ourselves where am i where am i going Where am I at? How do I feel about my life? How do I feel about myself? And you have got to find and carve out those moments intentionally. And for me, I realize the speed at which I've progressed through certain things in life, the way that I was able to get through certain heartbreaks, get through moments of tension in friendships, get through bad days at work, So many things that I experienced, I was able to recover a lot faster than the average person because of the amount of time that I spend alone. And if you have a fear of spending time alone, then you have to interact with that fear to truly be alone because when you don't, you're not good for yourself or for other people. And I can't tell you the amount of times I have interacted with men where we were on the other side of a sexual relationship or we were on the other side of a breakup or we were at the end of something critical and I asked them, why did you do what you did? And they really could not tell me. And the difficulty with living without intention and being in partnerships with men who do not live with intention, with women who do not live with intention, is that if they are not intentional about their own lives, if they don't have a growth mindset for themselves, if they don't say, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, this is my plan from point A to B, this is why I treat people the way I do, they really don't have a plan for your life. And my ignorance and naivete was giving my life that I was leading in an intentioned way over to people who did not have a plan for their own, thinking that they were going to make plans for both of us. 
And you can't be in a relationship with someone that has no plans for you. And from this notion of intention, it's how you become slowly over time a principled person. And I find that it is so rare these days to find principled men. Because if you live with intention and you say, this is why I do what I do, over time, you create this grander vision for your life and you begin to say, this is what I believe. And from my beliefs, this is why I do what I do. And people think that it's the opposite, right? People think if you have these principles, then from the principles, you're going to create the intention. But very rarely do the principles come first. Why? Because we often have to see the impact and the benefit of certain intention setting to place the kind of faith behind it to say, I truly believe in this. And these are things as simple as, I didn't necessarily believe, oh, it's incredibly important to exercise and live a healthy life and have a balanced diet. I simply knew, similar to how you're feeling now, I felt like when it came to my health, and my body, I was functioning in a sense of neglect and lack of self-awareness. And it was out of that desire to become aware that I began to exercise. And day after day exercising and seeing the mental and physical results of that exercise, and then deciding from there, I don't want to undermine my hard work and thus began to engage in nutrition and a balanced diet that I began to develop a principle for my life. Health is a critical part of feeling good and doing good and functioning well in life. It became a principle for me. And this ventures into things as serious as spirituality. I was very curious about Islam for a long time and so I began to fast and I set an intention every day, I'm not going to eat between sunrise and sunset. And I was praying during that time and I didn't know all of the proper prayers and rituals and words. I just knew this is something that I'm acknowledging, this is an intention that I'm setting. And over time, it's solidified into a principle, the principles of the oneness of God, the principles of the importance of chastity and fasting and charity. All of these things became my beliefs, but they began with me just saying, why, where am I, what do I feel I need? And the more that I've engaged in that practice of solitude, the better quality of life I have developed, I can promise you, but it begins with living intentionally. and. Living with intention sometimes can be so jarring and frustrating because when you really start to do it, it almost becomes a way of being to the point where you'll be at the club at 3 a.m. on a Friday night and be like, why actually am I here? And suddenly you have to go home. It's so strange how many moments I've had in my life like this where I remember I had a friend in college and I always go with her to parties. She would sort of be like, come, come, because we were also neighbors. So she would drag me to every party in Soho, all of these different clubs and gallery events. And a lot of the time I felt very empty. I've never been a heavy drug user. I've not been a big drinker. I would find myself, especially after a certain hour of the night, really desiring to go home. And one night she got shit-faced drunk and she was throwing up on the side of the street. And then after she sort of comes to herself 20 minutes later, she's like, let's go to the next party. And I say to her, I really Really want to go home and she's like you're no fun you're never any fun you always make it such a hard time to be out why the fuck are you even here and I paused for a moment and usually my instantaneous reaction would have been defensive but I had only recently really had begun living with intention because I was very concerned for what I was going to do with my future because this was my senior year of college. And I actually paused and I chuckled a bit and I said, you're right, why am I here? And I got in a car and I went home and that was the last time we ever hung out ever in life. And that's the thing, right? Is that when you do become self-aware and you begin to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I engaged with this person? Why do I eat this thing? Why do I watch this thing? Why do I listen to this kind of music? It is going to result in losses. It really is going to result in losses. 
And that is a risk that you take in living a well-intentioned life is that you do begin to see that there are things that are holding on to you that you no longer desire to hold on to. And when you start to let it go, you're going to receive resistance in life from things and people, experiences and jobs that were well served by you living unintentionally. But you will also begin to cultivate a rich and prismatic and beautiful life where you can look at the friends that you've chosen and say, this is what I love about you. This is what I love about you. Thank you for being here at this time in my life. You'll look at the result of the things that you've created by your own hands, whether it be businesses or artwork or novels or your own family. And you begin to say, I know why. And the course of your life, rather than just feeling like you're bumbling through this hellish landscape of relentless suffering and confusion and ignorance, you begin to really say, I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. And when you find yourself faltering, as we inevitably do, when you find yourself making mistakes or being hurtful or being human, you can say, I'm sorry, that really was not my intention. And when someone says, what were your intentions? You are able to say, this was my intention. My intention was to do this, 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 and this. And you don't have to live with so much guilt and so much shame because nobody will be able to look at you and say, that is a reckless person. That is a malicious person. You can say, I'm a good man. I'm a good woman and I'm trying my best to do good in the world and you can mean it and you can mean it. And that is a kind of peace. That's a kind of peace. Dear Viv, my ex-boyfriend has moved on and found a new girl. She's white, looks nothing like me. I don't know if he's doing this out of vengeance, but it really hurts. Should I do the same and find someone as a quick fix too? We should never do anything as a quick fix that involves people. Quick fixes are for when you make a large hole in the wall and you need your security deposit back on your rent. Quick fixes are not for things involving people because people are deeply sensitive and deeply sacred, fragile beings. I had a very interesting conversation recently with a black man who asked me about interracial relationships because it seems like the fact that this woman is white bothers you deeply. And he said, Bianca, how do you feel when you see black men with white women? I said, I don't care. And he said, no, really, like, does it bother you? Do you feel the same way about black women and white men? I say, you know, if a black man finds himself primarily and deeply attracted intrigued romantically by white women, then the biggest favor that he can do me and every single black woman is to date white women. The best thing that a person can do if they desire something is to go for the thing that they desire because they are going to punish, resent and compare the thing that they get in its steed, if it is unlike the thing that they desire. If she looks nothing like you and he's moved on and this woman's white, her being white, as strange as it sounds and as difficult as it is to acknowledge, is just a fact of the matter. I know that we like to believe, and in some ways it is true, especially because I work in entertainment. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've seen men go after a very particular archetype of woman because they believe that this type of woman is a status symbol. And it's not even necessarily any more white women. It's more this exotic, long black haired, Kim K, Latin, hourglass figure, ethnically ambiguous type. And men pursue these kind of women and desire to spend money on them and want to covet them as a symbol of their success and the status that they've gained in the world. I don't know if they care deeply for these women. I don't know if they're interested in these women. In fact, I would venture to say nine times out of 10, no. They want 
women who have fit themselves into that archetype and have marketed themselves as available to be taken care of in exchange for their ability to maintain that archetype. But beyond men who desire women as status symbols, beyond men who are trying to do what is expected of them societally or do what is expected of them by their family, why a man chooses a woman, there are so many factors that go into it. And then you have real genuine relationships where people find themselves with very similar interests or similar backgrounds or similar desires for life and they decide to get together or start a family or start a relationship and you begin to realize that the relationship between those people is those two people's relationships and the issue that you're having and asking my ex left me, he's with this other woman, should I get someone as a quick fix too, is you are still functioning in a paradigm in which there are three of you in that past relationship. And instead of trying to genuinely engage, saying, I desire love, I want to get back in the saddle, so to speak, and find someone else, your misbegotten intention is to bring a fourth person into a relationship that began with two people. So it was you and him, and that was a two-person relationship. But now you're trying to enter a relationship with him and her, so that it's you, her, and him. And you're saying a good thing to do would be to bring in this fourth person into this relationship. And I say this because all of the origins of your intentions are based on your relationship with this person. And that is very harmful. And I've done it before and I've done it unintentionally where I was in love with someone and they hurt me so badly that I would get into a relationship not having healed from the previous relationship. And while I was in that relationship, it was always me, the person I was actually with and my ex, and we were always in bed together, at the mall together, in the living room together, in the kitchen. In any fight that we had, there was always three people. Any love that we made, there was always three people because there was always this comparison and this tie and this link in my memory, in my associations with the way that I felt about my body and myself, always comparing the way that these men would spend money, where they would take me on dates, the kind of gifts that they got me, how they functioned as men. And I was punishing one man with what another man did to me, engaging in a relationship where I don't even know if I ever really gave these people a chance because in reality, I was so fixated on my initial relationship. And this is what happens when we don't heal. And this is baggage. This is called baggage. And what I didn't realize is that I was taking good, well-intentioned men, men who hadn't been in relationships for years, who were truly trying to give me and them a real fighting chance, a fresh start. I couldn't even come with the proper intention for those relationships because I was so fixated on my ex and the woman that he left me for. And it's all very detrimental. And who did I punish? In the end, I punished myself. Because the reality of it is, is that you're not in a three-person relationship. That person wakes up without you goes to work without you, goes on dates without you, and they've moved on. They are living their life. How they are living their life, I'm not going to say they went and built a wonderful life. I'm not going to say, oh, this white woman is the true love of his life. I don't know. Because oftentimes when we live with haphazard, unintentional action, so do the people that we tend to surround ourselves with. That's just the way the game goes, birds of a feather. But I will say, you owe yourself more than that. You owe yourself more than that. And I think that we should give ourselves a real fighting chance at love by healing in between relationships, really healing, really taking 
for me now, it's been almost two years since I've been in a real relationship and taking time to say, what do I really want? What can this past relationship teach me? What can I learn about myself through rejection? Because when you do that and you really cultivate that person that you really like, who's not just looking for a quick fix, which is often, by the way, how people describe drugs. <laughs> so addiction and obsession should tell you that even your ties to the relationship you had before were probably not the healthiest. When we take that time to really assess our relationships with ourselves, our relationship to romance, when we're really trying to get something that we want out of love, we have to be willing to have nothing at all. And in this time, and space of solitude and detachment. We can cultivate in ourselves a goodness and a sense of self-worth so that when we do meet another special person, because there's always the next great love waiting to happen, we can attract good men that we can also be good to. Because the worst thing in the world is when you find a truly good man and find that you can't open up and you can't be fully present because you're always somewhat in the past and you can't truly appreciate him for the good things that he does because you're constantly in the realm of comparison. And in doing so, when that person realizes this and internalizes it, it tarnishes their sense of self-worth. And this is really a genderless thing, right? Because how many times have you tried to be a very good woman to somebody who had so much baggage and so much hurt and so much disappointment that they were unwilling to meet you halfway emotionally or show up for the goodness that you were bringing. That's what happens when we don't take time to heal, when we don't take time to cultivate good lives in and of ourselves separately from the expectations, proclivities, actions, and relationships with other people, then we either find ourselves giving ourselves away to the first thing that shows us attention and affection, or we find ourselves withholding real attention and affection for the good people that show up for us. And I, for one, want more for you. I want better for all of us, but I, for one, want more for you than that. Dear Viv, how can a person escape who your family has made you to be, especially if that family has been toxic and abusive? Is it possible to come from a broken place and not be broken? You know, I had such a strange interaction the other day. I was on a first date, which became a last date, with a man who was describing his ex and he said her issue is that she came from a broken home and she didn't have a real father figure. And he said, women that have real father figures, they tend to know how to respect a man and to engage with him in healthy ways. He said, she wasn't like us. She came from a broken home. Mind you, this person, this was their first time ever meeting me. He had assumed that I had a very good relationship with my father because I told him that the week before I was going to be in Atlanta celebrating my father's birthday so I couldn't go out with him on that day. So he assumed because I was visiting my father, celebrating him, and I was doing so excitedly that I had come from a place where I was daddy's little girl. And I laughed so hard, not just at the sort of asinine assumptions that this person was making, but also just of this vision that he had had. When I told him the reality was that I had come from a broken home, that I spent many years completely disconnected to my father to such an extent that when I was in my sophomore year of college, I had no clue that my father had moved to New York from California. And I was walking down 96 and Broadway and I look into the window of a Walgreens and I see my dad and I literally do a double take because I'm thinking that it's some sort of mirage. And my dad runs out and he's like, B? And I was like, dad? And I was a few weeks shy of my 19th birthday. And that's how I found out that my father was living in New York. And I had so many parallel experiences this, to this throughout my life. I grew up 
living in so many different places, relying on so many different kinds of charity and family members, not having parents that were necessarily healthy, both of my parents having had cancer, living in a domestic violence shelter at a time, which I've spoken a bit about, going from place to place. I was a portrait child of a broken home. And it was so interesting because when this guy described this girl that he said was such a product of a broken home. And when I clarified to him without revealing too much that my upbringing had been less than ideal, he says, well, somebody did something right because look at how you've turned out. And I said, yeah, I did. And I really did think about that, though that was the last and final date for many, many reasons. He was also 40 minutes late. I thought to myself throughout my adulthood, entering in the world at 17 in New York, feeling so naked and alone and without a weapon to wield a family name or money. I was so angry for so long. And when I thought about my parents, I felt so much frustration and it was very difficult to see the goodness in them, which I see so easily now. And I didn't think my dad was a good man because of the harm that he caused. And I didn't think that my mother was a good mom because of the lack of care that I experienced at times. But as I grew older, I began to take responsibility for my own happiness. Getting my education was the way that I took responsibility for my finances. Creating work was the way that I took responsibility over my talents and my voice. But at some point, I had to take responsibility over my happiness, which of all those things was the thing that came the least naturally to me. I didn't want to make another broken home. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is what makes wholeness in a home? Is it money? No, it's not. And I realized that being at Columbia, being around these excessively wealthy people whose homes were in many ways, different ways, but many ways as broken as mine, despite the fact that they had more than enough money to live. Then I said, is it love? And yes, there was love in my household. My mom is a very loving person. But like the Toni Braxton song goes, love should have brought you home last night. Sometimes love does not cultivate wholeness in and of itself. And when I mean love, I mean affection and care. A household is whole when everyone has and takes responsibility. When the father takes on his responsibilities and fulfills his responsibilities as a father, protector, provider, a resolute voice of wisdom. When a mother takes responsibility as a mother, protector, provider, caretaker, voice of wisdom. When the children take responsibility for their studies, for their household chores, for their place in the household. And when everyone takes responsibility for the words that they say to one another, the way that they make each other feel and showing up for the important moments in one another's life, that's how you create a whole household, wholeness. That's how you prevent brokenness. And at so many fundamental moments in my childhood, I look back at a time where there was these fracture points and perhaps they could have been salvaged, but it was not in God's will. And at those moments, they were fundamental moments in which everyone failed to take responsibility. And it wasn't just my parents. There was fracture points in the relationships between my siblings and I, between aunts and uncles, between cousins, between parent to parent, parent to aunt, et cetera, et cetera. And it all hinged on this fact that nobody wanted to take responsibility for what had happened. It was a shit happens household. So if there was an eviction, if there was a death, any heavy thing came to the door as so many heavy things did. It was so much easier to hit the blunt and look away or take a shot and look away or run away physically. And I had, at very critical points in my young adulthood, when I feel that fracturing, 
when I feel that frustration of life, when I feel betrayal or whatever it is, the heaviness that comes to my door, I've made a cold, callous decision to take responsibility over what happens next. Because there are so many things that you find in this life are going to be beyond your control. And it's not about fault. So many things happened to me. Getting into a free car accident, that was not my fault. I was not the driver. Getting heartbroken or betrayed by someone that I had every intention of loving for the rest of my life, that was not my fault. You're not responsible for what did happen, but you are responsible for what can happen. And because I took that responsibility that said, listen, whether you ever come back to apologize, whether you ever come back to say, this was really fucked up that I did this or did not do this, whether or not you ever show up with the back pay child support or show up to the award ceremony when you couldn't show up in the first or second grade, it doesn't matter because I've gone to therapy and I've shown up for myself. I walk into an apartment with a full fridge because I am a provider, which I needed so badly as a child. And for every moment, little and small accomplishments in my life, I buy myself flowers and do something nice for myself because I needed a cheerleader. And when I find myself on the precipice of a deeply hard moment, feeling like I'm going to fall into the abyss, I go into a spiritual practice and I protect myself and I care for myself and I give myself time to think. When I make big mistakes, I forgive myself with no shame or humiliation because I needed grace. I needed someone who had their eyes open and their hand outreached to nurture and raise me and be good to me. And so many times when we don't have that person in our lives growing up and we come from this thing called brokenness, what we do for the next 30, 40 years is we search for a savior and we try to make our spouses into a savior and we try to make our occupation into a source of worthiness and we try to make our children a source of love and affection that we did not get. And when they turn adolescence and they rebuff us and they're cold to us and they're going through puberty and they're dealing with the difficulties of their worlds of which we know little and nothing about. We feel resentful to our children. We feel resentful to our spouses. We feel resentful to our jobs because nothing makes us whole. But at no point do we take responsibility and say, this is my life and this is my time. And every day it's running out and I've got to try for some goodness that doesn't exist outside of me. I have to look for something that's not going to betray me in all of this myriad of confusion and frustration. And that's how you make a broken thing whole. And then you don't find yourself looking so hard for apologies, looking so deeply for a savior, looking for someone to take you off your own hands, saying, please take this broken thing. I don't want it anymore. Self-abandonment and something so crazy happened to me recently. I was, many years ago, my father had cancer and he decided to go into chemotherapy and me and my dad had had a lifetime of vitriol. I was always his least favorite. He was deeply abusive towards me in my childhood and let it be known constantly that I was not someone that he cared for. But when it came time for him to have chemo, his wife had left him, he had no one really to care for him, and I became his primary caretaker for that entire summer. And I would pick up his meds, come home and clean the house and cook for him. I even gave him sponge baths. Someone that I had felt so disconnected to my entire life, so bullied by, so belittled and small at his hand. And I found myself being the person that maintained his quality of life, which that is the irony of God. And every day, having woken up knowing who this person is to me, feeling that frustration, and out of a sense of filial duty, being there and showing up anyway. 
even though I had other places to be and other opportunities. And that summer broke me. It was the hardest and saddest time of my young adult life. And I spent years after healing from it and talking to my therapist about it and working through it and writing through it, many essays, many poems, many letters, many entries, taking responsibility for the pain that existed inside of me because I did not want to see it manifest in the relationships that I had with men. And I did not want to become despondent and worthless to myself because of the way that I had been treated. And I healed myself and I continued to show up for my father, continued to love my father. Even at times it was incredibly difficult. And having had such a distance from that time, six years later, I was sitting at the Thanksgiving table with my dad, happy to be there, happy to be home in Atlanta. And he's explaining the pain of chemo to my aunt and talking about how it was the hardest pain he had ever went through in his life. And at the time, with my entire family present, he says, yeah, and at that moment in my life, at the worst pain I'd ever had, I was so, so mean to Bianca. I was so evil to her. He said I was abusive and tears welled up in my eyes. And I said, you remember that? When I tell you at a point, the tantrums and tirades, the verbal abuse got so heavy, so dangerous that I began to record them secretly because I said, if I don't record this, no one would believe it happened to me. And somewhere in some secret file and drive in the back parts of my computer, I had had those tapes for six years because my father had never acknowledged what he did and I had put it behind me and loved despite the pain. And in this moment he said, yeah, I remember. And I'm so sorry I did that to you. I'm so, so sorry. And it was in that moment that I realized two critical and quintessential things. One that I had known for a long time but solidified in my mind forevermore is that we are not the worst things that we have ever done. We are not a culmination of our sins or the worst things that we have done to others. That is not fundamentally who we are. And the second thing I realized is that a good man takes responsibility because that was the first time in my life, the first time I looked at my father and saw a good man. And many of us will never get that moment. And there are apologies from other people that I've long been done waiting for. This is a story of redemption, but it's not a story of forgiveness. Why? Because I had forgiven my father years before I ever came to that table, which is the reason I was able to come to the table in the first place. Because when you seek wholeness and you don't use the brokenness of things, the generations of brokenness, when you cultivate a vision with intention for your life to say, I don't care who did what, what was said, what was done, what was taken from me, this is my time. And I'm going to have a good life because I'm a good person who deserves good things and did not deserve the hand I was dealt, the things that were done and said to me, but I'll live on and I'll find a way through counseling, through spiritual guidance, through real prayer, through loving friendships and relationships and mentorships, I will find a way. I will walk towards wholeness. And when you take responsibility for your own life and you treat people well, despite how they often treat you, it's strange, intricate systems of intention, energy, goodness that we put in the world, not knowing if we'll ever reap it where we sow it, how we find it again. I didn't look for wholeness to go back and fix a broken home. My intention was never to go out and make a million dollars to go back and give it to my parents. Even though at times I thought that was the answer. No, at one point I opened my eyes and I said, I owe myself some things. But you know what else? I dream one day of having a wonderful and beautiful family with a good man. And I don't wanna perpetuate cycles of brokenness, of abuse and criticism and unforgiveness and lack and selfishness and neglect. I wanna show up whole. So when things fall apart as they sometimes do, let them be fractured. And by the hand of God, let us see them put together again, but let it not be broken in the ways it was so broken for so many years, for so many generations of my parents and my grandparents and them before who were slaves. A good man 
is one who takes responsibility. And a good woman is one who puts down the responsibilities that were never hers to carry. And in pursuit of goodness, in pursuit of wholeness, let us all try for better. I'm wishing you the best Black History Month, the happiest of Valentine's Day, all the love your heart can muster and all the courage it takes to experience it. Happy fifth anniversary to a great love of my life. Ask Viv after five incredible years, wishing you more life, more love. I'm Bianca Vivian, and if you ever need anything at all, you can always, always ask Viv. Somebody who